Good morning. I want to start by praying. I know there's a lot of people who are hurting right now um, that I'm looking at that that are also not here and maybe are looking at me through the screen. A lot of people sick, a lot of people going through a lot of various hardships. Um, and that's always true, but uh, it seems especially true today. So I just want to pray for you. And if that's you, then receive this. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would bring healing to each of these situations. We're in the book of Luke. We're seeing you do incredible miracles and heal people. So I pray that you would do that. And, and while they're in the midst of whatever storm they're walking through, whatever hardship, Lord, that they would know without a doubt that you are right there with them and you will never leave them and you will never forsake them. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you didn't know this, parenting is really, really Really hard. I think mainly because there's no one-size-fits-all approach to parenting, right? We always wish we had the silver bullet, you know, like this, this is what's going to help me. And then you find that thing and you're like, oh, wait, that doesn't work for this situation. All right, I don't have this figured out. Sometimes, though, with, with parenting, it's, it's so tricky because our kids need a stern rebuke. In this situation, and then they need a, a patient explanation here, and then they need just just raw compassion and mercy in this situation. There's no one size fits all approach. Ted Tripp, in his book Shepherding's a Child, Shepherding a Child's Heart, says this: We often reduce parenting to these three elements: rules, correction, punishment. This is how it works. You give your child the rules. The correction phase comes into play when they break the rules. And in the punishment phase, you announce the consequence they will receive for breaking the rules. Every family member needs its rules, correction, and punishment. But for many, this is the extent of the communication. A rich dimension of communication must lie beneath and support all you say in providing rules, calling your children to account, and meeting out appropriate discipline. See, look at this chart. This is what he's saying. That is where we live way too often as parents. I'm guilty of it. Let me share an example. So this summer, um, our kids were out playing, and uh, I won't say which kid this was, but... Um, one of them just went missing. And if you've been to our house, we have a, a big side yard and even a lot beyond that and uh, a backyard and, and there's an empty lot even be, beyond that. So we always say we, we love it. I don't know if I, you know, who knows if we'll move uh, anytime soon, even within town, because it's like we have the best of both worlds in town, but yet kind of country feel for our kids. So anyway, um, one of them goes missing. And I'm like, ah, not a big deal. There's a lot of space. I'm looking around. Um, can't find them. So there's this alley behind our house. So here's the back of our house. Here's the backyard. Not that big of a backyard. Um, but then there's an alley and you're not supposed to go beyond the alley. And the kids know that, right? Don't go in the alley. Cars drive on it, whatever, without permission. And beyond that alley is an empty lot. But then there's a grove of trees. And in the summer, it gets pretty overgrown. And they love to play in there. And they can. And we let them with permission, but they did not have permission. And that is where this one child was. So when I found them, I dutifully went, you know the rules. 
go inside. You're not coming out again today. That was it. That was the extent of my parenting for that situation. What that kid needed was actually a good warning and perhaps, and perhaps a pleading with them, entreaty. Hey, this is why this isn't okay. And this is why this rule is in place. Let's talk about this. Um, some richer forms of communication. I gave them none that time. So parenting fail. But see, with parenting, it takes extra time. It takes extra effort. But it is essential if we're going to parent even decently. But what we're going to see today in Scripture is that Jesus is actually the perfect dad for messed up kids like you and me. He exemplifies this well in this Scripture today. And he, he uses several different forms of this rich communication down here. And they're all meant to shepherd his kids, his people, with love. So the title for this message is this. Jesus is the perfect dad for messed up kids. Jesus is the perfect dad for messed up kids. So we're in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37. I'll give you some time to get there. Luke 9, 37. And two big takeaways I want you to see in this text today as we walk through it. First, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is your incredible dad. So do you view him as a dad, though? Do you view him as your perfect dad? Do you treat him as your perfect dad? Find hope today. Find joy. Find rest in the fact that he is your perfect dad, even when you're messing up. Secondly, second big takeaway, parents, Jesus is an incredible example for you in your parenting. If you're a parent, take some notes from Jesus' playbook. If you're not a parent and desire that someday, take some notes from Jesus' playbook. So let's jump in. Luke 9, 37. Here we see first Jesus is the perfect dad to flaky kids. Verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, Jesus. Just then a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth. Severely bruising him, it scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So to give you a bit of context here of what's happening, at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus' disciples, his followers, were sent out to cast out demons. And they do it. They go from town to town. And now, they can't. And it's because of their flaky distrust of God. One day they're trusting God. They're walking in his power. They're healing people. The next, they're not. Earlier in chapter nine, Peter actually declares, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the chosen one. You are the son of God. And they see Jesus in his splendor and the transfiguration up on this mountain. And they come down from the mountain and Peter is now failing to believe and live out the very things he just experienced. He's flaky. And Jesus, being a perfect dad, shows his disappointment. 
Even perfect dads get disappointed in their kids. Verse 41, Jesus replied, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Jesus is addressing everyone here. So it's not just his disciples, which is probably why he's more sharp. But he still is definitely addressing his disciples. And he calls them unbelieving and perverse. Another way to say that would be flaky. It's not that they don't believe that Jesus is God. They do. It's just one day they're full of trust. They're full of faith. And the next day they're not flaky. At their core, they have perverse, wicked hearts that are dead and in need of Jesus's life, just like the next person. But something alarming in verse 41 that Jesus says, he says, how long will I be with you and put up with you? And it begs the question, is Jesus merely tolerating his followers? Or maybe a little more personal, does Jesus just merely tolerate you and me? Well, first, we need to remember that he's addressing everyone here. Literally, there would have been people that hated him that he was that was that was hearing this and that he was addressing this to. But second, we need to we need to know that just because Jesus is disappointed in his disciples doesn't mean he's just tolerating them. Let me give you an example. Let's say, you know, I'm sure this never happened to you, but let's say your mom or your dad growing up said, how many times do I have to tell you? Or let's say they said, you know, uh, or maybe kind of muttered to themselves and you heard them, how long until they go to bed? Or what if they said, I, I can't believe you did that again. It's not that your parents loved you any less at that point. They were just disappointed in you. And any good parent gets disappointed in their kids sometimes. Here's the thing with Jesus here. He hates sin. He's God. And he loves you. He doesn't just tolerate you. Jesus is disappointed in you when you sin. But being the perfect dad that he is, unlike earthly dads that we have who sometimes fly off the handle or they, they just leave, he doesn't do that. He doesn't leave. He doesn't fly off the handle. He's measured and he's even compassionate. We're going to see in a second. But consider Isaiah 46, 4. Listen to the father's heart. I will be the same until your old age and I will bear you up when you turn gray. I have made you and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. I will bear and rescue you. See, this is the same verbiage here. He bears us up and he bears with us. It would be a lot like this. Hopefully this doesn't happen to you, but imagine you have a kid and they get up on the roof of your house and they know they're not supposed to be up there and they jump off the roof and break their leg. What do you do as a child? You go, well, I'm sorry. Well, I told you so. No, no. You pick them up and you bring them to the hospital. See, that's what's happening here. Jesus is like, you guys, (laughs) I can't believe you're not getting it yet. And he picks them up and he picks them up in this way. At the end of verse 41, he says, go away. I don't want to heal this boy. No, he says, bring your son here. 
Verse 42, as the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. He heals the boy. After his disciples and, and this crowd and their, their unfaithfulness and their flakiness, even though he's disappointed, he willingly cleans up their mess. And being the perfect father that he is, he enacts something called entreaty. End of verse 43. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Ted Tripp explains entreaty like this. Entreaty is earnest and intense. It involves pleading, soliciting, urging, and even begging. It is not, however, the begging of a beggar. It's rather the earnest pleading of a father or mother who, understanding his child, the ways of God, and the extremity of the moment, is willing to bear his soul in earnest pleading for his child to act in wisdom and faith. See, Jesus here is pulling them aside and saying, hey, what I'm about to do and what I'm about to say is super important. I'm about to be betrayed and given over to men who hate me. He's saying, this is why it's so important for you to trust me and stop being so flaky. I'm not going to be around much longer. And then the mantle is going to be passed on to you for this ministry. Entreaty, earnest, intense, pleading. Disciples, wake up. Get a little more consistent here because I'm not going to be with you forever. And we know that Jesus is talking about his arrest and his crucifixion. But the disciples have no clue. Verse 45. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Once again, they're flaky. Why couldn't the disciples understand this? Why couldn't they understand him saying, hey, the son of man, I am about to be betrayed in the hands of men. Why couldn't they get this? Well, first, it would have been a completely foreign concept to them that the Messiah, the Savior, would suffer, much less not take over and have complete military success. This was confusing to to them to, to begin with. But what or who was concealing this from them? Why couldn't they understand it? It was their own flaky, distrusting hearts. And you and I know really well when we start to distrust the Lord, guess what? The lies of the devil become even more amplified in our minds, don't they? And that is what's happening to the disciples here. Their own flaky, distrusting hearts are now opened up to the devil's lies, so they couldn't get it. It's not God concealing it from them. I'm convinced of that. Otherwise, why would Jesus go, hey, let these words sink in? You're not going to be able to understand them anyways, but let it sink in. No, that's, that's, that's not God. He's not working against himself. They couldn't understand Jesus because their minds were clouded with distrust of God and the, the devil's influence. But before we get too judgy about the disciples here, isn't this us? 
I mean, think about it. You could, right this very minute, in this sermon this morning, as we're reading God's word, have his words being read to you. And because you're so distracted by whatever, and because of our our natural tendency towards being flaky in our hearts and our minds, we're so distracted we can't even hear the words of God this morning. Yeah, we're audibly hearing it, but we're not taking it in. This happens to us all the time. But here's the good news. God is our perfect father. And he has compassion for us, even in our flakiness. And he doesn't give up on us. He continues to father us along through it. See, Jesus really is the perfect dad, even in our flakiness. Next, we're going to see that Jesus is the perfect dad for what I'm going to call spotlight hungry kids. Verse 46. An argument started among them, among the disciples, about who was the greatest of them. We'll just stop with that sentence right there. An argument about who's the greatest. Sometimes I I read about the disciples and I just shake my head. Are you guys that dense? It, It is ridiculous. They're arguing about who's the best. But even more ridiculous is not that they're arguing about who's the best. Their focus was so completely off that they forgot who the best was. They forgot what this is all about. This is about Jesus, not who's number two. But this is you and me as well. We become spotlight stealers from God. We, we go from, look what God did to, look what I did. You might be thinking, well, not me. I always give God the credit. Probably not. Let's prove it. Let's say that you decided one day, hey, I'm going to stay after church and I'm going to clean the toilets. Every Sunday. By the way, that's not passive aggressive. Like we need someone to do that. In fact, we have someone doing it and you'll make them upset probably if you do it. So please don't do it. But let's say you did that. I'm going to stay after the church and I'm going to clean the toilets every Sunday. And for a while, nobody else knows it. Your, your spouse doesn't even know your kids. You're just, you're just serving. You're serving the Lord. I'm going to do this. It's an act of service to the Lord. No one knows. And after a few Sundays, ah, you let it slip to your spouse and your family and maybe to a friend or two. I'm cleaning the toilets at church. And then sooner, sooner than later, you make sure Matt notices. And, uh, before you know it, You're stealing the spotlight from God. Something you meant to do as a service to the Lord. You're you're now trying to to steal some of the credit and the glory. Or say you're at work. And you're like, you know what? This person's struggling. They really need a listening ear at lunch. I'm just going to sit by them for a couple times at work. And just, just give them a listening ear. Just to love on them well. Well, after about day five. After work, you go and. Find someone and and complain to them about the person that won't shut up at lunch. Why? You want the credit. You want the spotlight deep down. See, we're actually way more spotlight hungry than we want to admit to ourselves. Much less to anybody else. We all want to steal at least just a little fraction of the spotlight from God. But here's the great news, you guys. God is our perfect father. And he has compassion on us in it. 
He doesn't give up on us. He continues to father us along through it. Jesus really is the perfect dad for selfish spotlight stealing kids like us. Look at his compassion here. Verse 47. But Jesus, even knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. And he told them. I'm going to stop right there. That's a weird spot to break. But here's why I'm stopping here. Before we even get to Jesus speaking, his actions speak much louder than his words. They're fighting about who's the best and he doesn't come in and lay the hammer down. I, I, would, have, I would have done that if I was Jesus. You guys are really fighting over who's number two? He doesn't. Then... Seeing each of their ugly intentions, their inner thoughts, it says, he sets up for an illustration with a little kid and talks to them calmly. If I saw my ugly intentions while I'm clamoring for the spotlight, I'd let me have it. But he doesn't. And he calmly instructs them. Verse 48. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. This is Jesus' perfect fatherly instruction. Ted Tripp describes it like this. Instruction is the process of providing a lesson, a precept, or information that will help your children to understand their world. As a parent, you're dealing with young people who have large gaps in their understanding of life. They need information about themselves and others. They need to understand the the world of spiritual reality and the principles of the kingdom of God. Jesus knows that his disciples weren't just selfish and power hungry. They fundamentally had a gap in their understanding. They lacked understanding of how God's upside-down kingdom operates. So he instructs them. And he says to them, essentially, Hey, my economy, God's economy, is an upside-down, flipped-on-its-head economy. It's different from the world. Society says that the children are unimportant, but God says they are infinitely important. So he says, Hey, come over here. Has a little child come up. And then society says that power, fame, spotlight are important. But Jesus says, no, God God says that unrecognized, selfless servants' hearts are actually infinitely important and valuable. Jesus knew they needed a change of perspective through instruction. What they didn't need at that point anyways was a good scolding. If he would have scolded them, they would have still had the same perspective. Nothing really changed. They needed instruction. Instruction that would jolt them. Not because they're being yelled at, but because they should have been yelled at, maybe. And he, he's not yelling. Instead, he goes, hey, you got to think about this completely differently. Whoever is least among you, this one is great. Jesus is the perfect dad for spotlight-hungry kids. Last week, we see see that Jesus is the perfect dad for tribalistic kids. Before I show you this in the text, I want to describe very well what I'm talking about. Tribalistic means aggressive. 
It means you're being exclusive. It's me versus them, us versus them. That's the type of mentality. You, you end up wanting to fight people instead of the problem. Now, let me use a couple of examples. And if you're checked out, please don't uncheck yourself out right now because I'm going to say some buzzwords that if you don't get the context, you're going to be up in arms. So hang with me here. Here's an example of what a tribalistic us versus them mentality looks like from two different angles on the same issue. Okay, first one. That neighbor of mine, I've never met them. But they've got a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard. You know, I've never talked to them, but they probably wanted to fund the police. And there's no point in even getting to know them. Now, here's another perspective that's tribalistic. That was tribalistic. This also is tribalistic. Oh, that neighbor of mine, they got a Blue Lives Matter sign in their yard. They are definitely racist, and there's no way we could ever get along. Both of those mentalities from completely different angles are tribalistic. This, unfortunately, right now in our world is just one of a million examples I could use. Aggressive, exclusive, us versus them. And this is the disciples, unfortunately, here. Look at John, verse 49. John responded, Master, We saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Do you hear the tribalism? We saw someone. Did you see what they did, Jesus? We saw someone driving out demons in your name. Jesus, driving out demons is your thing. It's our thing. They stole your thing. How dare they? So we tried to stop them. Aggressive. Let's fight. And he does not follow us. They don't follow us. Exclusive. You're not one of us. So you must be the enemy. And Jesus being such a great dad. Corrects John very quickly. He says. Verse 50. Don't stop him. Jesus told him. Whoever. Because whoever is not against you. Is for you. Correction. Jesus is helping John quickly shift his behavior and his thinking because it's clearly off. Jesus isn't, it doesn't seem at least like he's superheated or sharp. He just very matter of factly in a very helpful way says, hey, whoever is not against you is for you. Don't be so tribalistic. You're not the only one doing my work, John. I was corrected once as a child. (laughs) I was corrected a ton as a child. Uh, But one particular time, I went up to grandma's house. And and grandma and grandpa, they just lived, we we lived um, not that far away. I could just walk there right after school. And I would do this often because she had great snacks. And so uh, we'd always play games. And for some reason, I always won. I want to say she kind of rigged that. So I always won. But we'll just go with that. I was really good at dumb luck games. But uh, we're, we're playing a game, and, and I must have lost or something, but I can't quite remember the details there. But I remember using a four-letter word that I learned at the playground that day. I vaguely knew what it meant, but I knew that it was wrong. Okay? And I just throw it out there. And my grandma, very quickly, 
corrected me. But she, what she didn't do, though, is get out the belt, all this stuff. But she, she knew that I didn't quite understand what I was doing as well. But she very quickly said, Matt, we don't ever say that again. And here's why. Here's what it means. And I don't ever want to hear you saying that again. And she never heard me saying that again. Have I ever said it again? Can't confirm or deny. But she corrected me calmly explaining what it meant and why it was wrong. See, this is what Jesus is doing here. He sees the tribalism. He see, sees John and quickly corrects him and helps him understand why what he's doing is wrong. But the disciples being the disciples still don't get it, and they're still being rather tribalistic. So verse 51, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined a journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him, because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? I don't even have to show you the tribalism there, right? The whole new level. Not, he's, he's, these guys are not just stopping someone. Now they're like, hey, uh, Jesus, can we just kill these guys? Now, what you have to understand, just, just to at least get a glimmer into why they might say something like this, the Samaritans believed that the place of worship should not be Jerusalem. So they broke off from the Jews. So they believed they should worship on a different mountain, Mount Gerizim, and, and a lot of other things. They basically created a new religion with a different religious history even since then and, and beliefs. And these Samaritans were known for sometimes even killing Jews who traveled through their city. So it wasn't without reason that they might say something like this. But here, it wouldn't be warranted because the Samaritans simply don't welcome them. All right? They should be grateful, but James and John, often known as the sons of thunder, mainly because of this story, take an us versus them mentality to a new level. Hey, Jesus, can we ask God to burn them alive, please? Aggressive and exclusive may be too tame of term here, but Jesus, being the perfect dad he is, rebukes them. And it's very quick, verse 55 but he turned and rebuked them. I would love to hear what he said. We don't know. Tripp in his book says, sometimes a child must experience your sense of alarm, shock, and dismay at what he has done or said. Rebuke is sometimes necessary. James and John needed to hear Jesus' sense of alarm, shock, and dismay. They were asking God to kill people for not giving them a hotel room, essentially. Now, in our household, the Yoder household, lying deserves a rebuke and warrants a rebuke and punishment. And our kids know it. Now, this is just, I'm not trying to superimpose that on you. I'm just telling you, here's the Yoder household. Here's what warrants a rebuke. And here's why. It's a direct attack on truth itself. And it often is an attempt to cover up more wrongdoing. So if you, you, if you lie in the Yoder household, you're going to get a rebuke right away from mom or dad. 
And that's what Jesus does here. He rebukes them. But God, being our perfect dad, rebukes us when we need it. See, earthly dads, even myself as a dad sometimes, rebukes at the wrong time or way too often. God always does this at just the right time with just the right amount. I remember not that long ago, God rebuked me. I remember, this is going to sound so crazy. This is how messed up we get, right? God's forgiven me. My wife's forgiven me. Praise the Lord. But I sharply got on Heather for not picking a show when I gave her the remote. So I got up to go get a snack or something. He put the remote next to her. Didn't say, hey, honey, why don't you pick something out to watch? No, just put it down. Go get I just flipped out. Why didn't you why didn't you pick out a show? So usually couples are fighting because they want the remote, right? I'm going, oh, I don't want the remote. I always pick something to watch. You see how messed up this is? Not it didn't take long for the Lord to rebuke me. And I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was God. And he was like, Matt, what are you doing? He's like, I've been so patient with you. Even today, and you turn and do this and treat her like that. Go apologize specifically now. So I did. And she forgave and we moved on. But Jesus really is our perfect dad who rebukes us when we're being dumb. But Jesus being the perfect dad doesn't just leave it there. Verse 56, he moves on with us. It says, and they went to another village. They went to another village. What's most amazing to me is that James and John aren't kicked out of the group. I'd at least say, hey, you know, this group of 12 that are my close guys, you're out of that circle. Okay, you can follow far behind. All right, but no, you guys are out. But he doesn't. They go to the next village. Jesus just goes on with life with them. Yes, he rebukes them. He calls them out, but then he walks forward with them. You know, some of the most effective moments in parenting for me have come when after disciplining my children, I then have some fun with them. We move on. We have supper as usual. We play some Uno and we wrestle, we snuggle. Because I'm saying with my words, but also with my actions, I still love you and I'm not going anywhere. And that's what God does with us. So I want to end with a scary thought. God knows every single sinful, messed up thing you did this past week. So I want you to think of one sinful, messed up thing you did this past week. Shouldn't take you long. Here's a scarier thought. God knows every sinful, messed up thing you thought this past week. Think of one of those. What's one sinful, messed up thing you thought this past week? Now listen, here's a mind-blowing thought. Your perfect father, God, knew the actions and thoughts that you just thought about, knew that you were going to do them, 
And on top of that, he knew every single sinful, messed up action or thought that you've ever had or ever will have. Yet, he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. I want you to believe this morning that he is saying to you today, no matter what you have done, I still love you. And I'm not going anywhere. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this last verse today. That they just went on to another village after a stern rebuke. This is how you treat us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You still love us and you're not going anywhere. Thank you for that, Jesus. I pray that you would transform our lives by the earth shattering fact that you are a perfect dad. And I pray for anyone in here who struggles with me even equating father with God. I pray that you would bring about healing to their hearts and their lives for the ways that they've experienced fathers in ways that are not okay. I pray that you would step in and be that perfect dad that they never quite had. And God, I pray for us who are parenting right now, help us to emulate you, even even just a fraction of, of you, Jesus, and the way you respond to your kids. Help us to do that today in your strength and your power. And thank you that even on our worst days, You still walk forward with us. In Jesus' name, amen.